Kia ora, I'm Georgina Campbell. It's February 15 and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. The country's infrastructure woes became very clear for commuters in our biggest city earlier this week. Aucklanders were stunned after dozens of trains were delayed or cancelled right at rush hour due to speed restrictions enforced by KiwiRail to combat overheated rail lines. It's yet another example of our ageing infrastructure and the dire need for us to invest in replacing and upgrading failing parts of the national network. So how much would it cost to get the trains running on time? And is there the political will to meet the price tag? Today on The Front Page, we're joined by Infrastructure New Zealand Chief Executive Nick Leggett to discuss the costly issues facing the government. Nick, what was your reaction when you heard Auckland Transport had to cancel train services due to heat concerns? Well, my reaction was, One of disappointment, obviously, that so many thousands of commuters would have to either have their journeys delayed and had to find another way home, or that this could go on for some time. But there's a much bigger issue at work here, and it is not actually the time for finger-pointing of any one entity. The result of what we're seeing in Auckland with these rail lines and in Wellington with the network there delaying passenger services is exactly what we've seen with our three water infrastructure and with our roads, with all the potholes we've seen across the country. It's long-term sweating of assets. There has not been enough investment over long periods of time in renewing and maintaining assets that really keep our country moving every day and keep us healthy and connected. And that's the bottom line. So considering that all of these issues have been bubbling away under the surface for so many years, why has this situation in the super city sort of seemingly caught people by surprise? The problem is that these assets were often very well-built, well-engineered, well-installed, and they really only become a problem when they get to that point where they're either failing or they're you know, under severe stress. So you can mask this for long periods of time, and the same goes for roads. You can actually mask a road that hasn't had the appropriate investment over long periods of time, but it gets to a point where it catches up, and that's what we're seeing in Auckland and Wellington. And it also speaks to you know, the fact that, because people will say, well, the last government spent billions of dollars on rail. Yes, they did, but they spent it on specific projects to enable freight movement. What we're talking about here is the movement of people, of passengers, in two of our largest cities, where Auckland is our largest city, and then the Wellington region. Uh, that clearly has not been a priority. And what we know is that actually if you give people the option to catch public transport, in this case a train, they're not using the roads. We reduce congestion, and it's more efficient and a more sustainable way of moving people uh, around cities. And that, that's something I think that's going to have to be confronted quite quickly. 
These passengers are travelling on the worst affected southern line, where nearly a third of this evening's rush hour trains have been cancelled. Auckland Transport says wait times will likely double from 10 to 20 minutes there. As you say, Auckland's not alone in this. I've certainly experienced Wellington and Porirua train cancellations even earlier this summer and in previous years due to these heat issues. Is this also an issue relating to climate change and our weather getting warmer as well as this collective failure to invest in our tracks? Well, there are much hotter climates than New Zealand that have rail that works effectively where the networks don't have to be slowed down because it's hot. So I'd much prefer to go, I think, with the the idea that if assets are being compromised, it is because they have not had the sufficient renewal or replacement and they've been sweated for too long. And that's sadly, I think, what's going on here. Unfortunately, it does land in the lap of current day commuters. It's very important, I think, that we we recognise that we can play the blame game or we can actually focus on where the money is going to come from to invest in these critical assets. And as I said, the same goes for Three Waters, same goes for our highway network and for local roads. There just hasn't been the money spent on keeping the assets up to scratch over very long periods of time. So how much money? Do you have any idea how much it would cost to get the country's tracks up to scratch? I don't. The only figure I've got is $750 million for the Wellington Passenger Rail Network, which of course is owned by Kiwi Rail, but the regional council, the Greater Wellington Regional Council, runs the train services there. It's it's a significant amount of money. It is frustrating when the last government spent billions of dollars on freight, for, on rail freight, that it appears didn't actually shift anything at all in terms of freight tonnage from road transport to rail. And then we're left with this pretty significant deficit that is only going to get worse before it gets better because it's very unlikely we're going to be able to start investing in time to, to significantly improve this and you know, within the next year or two, I would have thought. Can we just drill into a little bit more detail in terms of your view on this government's position on infrastructure? What do you make of its priorities? Well, I think it's wanting to build that strong delivery system and I think improve government as a client. So they're also going to be looking at wider use of private sector as a funder and deliverer of infrastructure. It's never sexy to replace unseen pipes or railway tracks or improve roading pavements because the appeal politically is always to build something new. And, of course, we know that infrastructure projects, we know that they can transform lives and people get really excited and it's obviously there's a political benefit to that as well. But actually doing the bread and butter stuff, making sure you've got the money to invest and not getting sucked into, you know, the fancy new stuff, you know, we need a greater balance there. We need a greater media and public focus on actually just keeping the assets we've got in a good condition so we don't have to spend too much money later. We can't keep kicking the can down the road, and I think that is being felt and understood by more and more New Zealanders. It's a challenge because 
most of us just rely on these things every day in our lives. We expect them to work. We expect that the money has been spent to keep them to a condition that means that they'll be able, they'll have a useful life far into the future and that we won't face disruption. But sadly, we're being let down on that. And so it's about changing, I think, mindset and a much greater public interest in, in the condition and the state of our assets. You've previously raised this figure that New Zealand has a $20 billion infrastructure deficit. Can you, at a high level, explain how much is needed for improving and replacing what we already have versus new projects that we haven't embarked on yet? Look, I think everybody would wish that it was only $20 billion. It's actually over $200 billion. That number came from the Infrastructure Commission, who are tasked with actually putting together information that helps us make these decisions and charts our way forward in terms of our infrastructure investment. Included in that is that backlog of work that is needed to ensure that the assets we've already got are kept up to scratch, that we're not going backwards. But it's also those new projects that the country needs to stay productive. And the Commission has also said that we need to spend an additional $30 billion per annum to ensure that we are keeping up with maintaining the assets, as well as investing in new projects. So it's a lot of money. That's $30 billion over 30 years. I suspect we might be at 15% of that. But you can't turn the tap on overnight. But what we should be looking to do is lift that over the next five years and keep lifting it, ensuring that we've got the funding, because the government have obviously come into office and, and recognised there isn't money to do a lot of what needs to be done. There are ways that we can fund projects using private capital that keeps the government in control of them as the ultimate customer, but in a way that widens that pipeline. And this is where we talk as an organisation. I mean, we advocate for more infrastructure for New Zealand on behalf of the infrastructure industry. But we did a report last year with Infometrics, which actually said, if you line that pipeline up better, so you, you are actually saying in advance, look, we're going to do this here, we're going to invest this in three years and that in five years, and you line that stuff up, the efficiencies you get from people, from planning, from gear, New Zealand could save money by being more efficient. So we've got to line the stuff up, depoliticise it, make sure that it goes on beyond election cycle. I've been quite supportive often of things like, say, the Infrastructure Commission or a Climate Commission, because they can take a 30 to a 40-year view versus a political cycle, which is, you know, three years in our case. You know, and then a new government comes in and turns those off, and then they get turned on again, off again, on again. That could be reinvented in quite a different way in which we lock and load it so under successive governments changing, it doesn't change. We're marking one year on from Cyclone Gabrielle, you're actually speaking to us from Hawke's Bay. Considering the human and financial cost of that disaster, do you think there has been an adequate wider examination of the state of our infrastructure as a result of that horrible disaster? That's a really good question in the circumstances, and I think it's worth acknowledging. A year ago, 11 people lost their lives, and many hundreds of homes and businesses were, were devastated. Now, 
the sort of the untold story of that is that actually there was a lot of infrastructure that worked that saved, you know, big chunks of residential areas from flooding. And the response initially, I think, was quite strong in, in part We've got to use those learnings and, and apply them because this is going to happen in other parts of the country with extreme weather and earthquakes. We know that. We know that hard discussions are going to be needed in the years ahead. There are some communities in different parts of the country that it's not going to be feasible for people to keep living where they're living. They're going to be too exposed to water, to flooding. And really, do we want to be investing in infrastructure that might protect those people? Or do we want to actually be investing in other areas that can help productivity? And that's going to be a hard question and a hard discussion to have. You can't treat that lightly. We're talking about people's homes. But we're not made of money. And we can't engineer our way out of every climate risk. And finally, Nick, Kiwi Rail is appearing before a select committee today. No doubt they will be asked about the train tracks and the Cook Strait Ferry debacle, among other problems. What are the key questions you think Kiwi Rail needs to sort of front up on? Well, there will be questions naturally about the IREC Ferry project. They are a state-owned enterprise and there has been a lot of political direction over the years from different governments about where priorities are and where money might be available for investment. And as I've sort of stated earlier, often people in political positions, and I, I can say this with some confidence because I've been there myself, are not focused on those bread and butter asset replacements and renewals. You know, I think the challenge for the government will be to let Kiwi Rail give an honest account of the condition of its assets work out where the core parts of the network are to ensure the country is productive and to be able to move people on, on trains in those major cities. And where, where can it be, you know, really good effective freight corridors? Where can it support uh, the movement of freight from ports and, uh, and, and other parts of productive parts of the country? And really focus in on, you know, the assets that support that, their assets that support that in, in those areas. This is the, the sexy stuff. Really getting Kiwi Rail to come forward with where its core offering is and where investment and assets should follow. There's too much political tinkering. In fact, the Infrastructure Commission did produce very good information which showed that the closer network infrastructure assets are to political governance, the worse they perform. I wouldn't put Kiwi Rail squarely in that, you know, because they do have an independent board and um, you know, they, they, they operate a very large company. Um, but that is, I, I do think that the government's focus on, on building the right kind of system and the right kind of skills and capabilities in an, in an infrastructure system for the country is the right way to go. And then we've got to take good independent advice to build that pipeline up so we get the right infrastructure projects that are going to help the country, that they're going to help people move around and help us decarbonise and, um, and actually, you know, build our economy. That's how New Zealand is going to be competitive. So not a small challenge, but if we look at these challenges that are coming up, they're facing us all the time. If we look at them with some new lenses, and we recognise where the problems are at a very high level. We get the right kind of decision-making made for the right reasons. While looking at the new projects that can make us more productive, New Zealand will be better off than if we continue on the path that we have been to date. Thanks for joining us, Nick. 
that's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Ethan Sills with sound engineer Paddy Fox. I'm Georgina Campbell. Subscribe to The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts and tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.